Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and is supported by Talisker Single Malt Whiskey. My guest today is Ed Stafford. Ed is one of the top adventurers on the planet, a man who famously walked the entire length of the Amazon River and has since undertaken challenge after challenge for his TV survival shows. Now we're still in lockdown, so this episode was again recorded remotely, so forgive any little dips in quality. Hopefully you won't notice. As ever, Ed and I answer some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of my favourite Talisker to the top question I pick out. Anyway, here we go, and I hope you enjoy it. So, here we are, Ed Stafford, the legend, the man that has done an immense amount of stuff extreme stuff i'd like to add has joined us ed thanks for joining me and welcome thanks foxy privilege to be on mate no no i i really really appreciate you coming on and uh we're actually recording this on ve day so happy ve day for however many weeks ago it will be when this goes out but um mate it's obviously we're we're, we're doing this remotely obviously because we're on lockdown we're in the middle of the we're not in the middle, hopefully, but we'll soon see, of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, how have you found lockdown? Well, um, I, invariably, it's very, very different for different people, isn't it? I mean, I, um, mm-hmm. we're really lucky. We're in, we're in the middle of the countryside and we've got a nice garden and stuff like that. Um, and so um, it's been a bit of a reset, if I'm honest. It's, um, I, I'm sure like you, I, my, I'm forever traveling forever at airports forever um uh, waiting around for the next flight and um to yeah. be at home with my wife and she's my wife's um about six months pregnant with uh, twin girls at the moment and so wow. and we've got a three-year-old boy um and so just having weirdly having that luxury of just enforced time with those guys and helping my wife obviously while she's quite getting quite big and being yeah. at home and, and, and like we've been just he, uh, my little boy's into investigating and finding bugs and stuff. So it's just been literally exploring the garden or using our sort of one form of exercise a day to go outside and find earwigs and millipedes and stuff like that. And it, to be honest, mate, I've, I'm really appreciating the, um, the family time, actually. They literally enforced, um, you know, space and time to, to, to be with the people who, who you love the most, really. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, hopefully a lot of people have taken it that way. Because yeah. um, I think financially we're screwed, but <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, I'm the, yeah, exactly. There's nothing going on, but um, yeah, hopefully that's something that people. It's that reset that people will get from this, and everyone will yeah. um, remember to to invest in their closest a little more than we used to do. Yeah. Um, the banter. I mean, we live in a little village, and and just the banter that's going. I mean, it happens on WhatsApp groups, doesn't it? Um, everywhere, and but um, yeah. It's like the videos going around. I know we 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 shared a couple, but um, you know, it's just such a nice British way of dealing with a problem. I think, and um, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of positive sort of qualities that will come out of the whole thing, like you know that community spirit and people coming together. So yeah, weirdly, I think it's um, you know, I'm not dismissing all of the the you know the tragedy and the death side of it and the people having to deal with the, the fallout both economically and 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 you know from a lifestyle perspective, but. But um, I don't know. We're dealing with it quite well, I, I would say. But yeah. Again, I, I stress we are we are one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Yeah, but we've always got to look for that silver lining. Got to find a positive somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. Um, mate, yeah. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned about your your boy there and mm-hmm. how he's he's become this investigator because it's that takes us back to the first question really, which is when. When did you first become interested in, in adventuring? 
Well, um, it's not as sort of classical a story as, as um, you might think, really. I mean, I, um, although I, did, I grew up in the countryside, not very far from where I am now in Leicestershire, and it was sort of rolling fields, and we used to build dams and streams and tree houses and dens and, you know, light fires at a ridiculously young age and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, it, was, it was ace. I absolutely loved it. And, um, and it was a real freedom back in the days where nobody was worried about... Um, children getting abducted or attacked or anything like that. It was a, it was a mm. very innocent era. Um, so I think that's where my, that's where it all started. And then, you know, actually it was kind of um, given a rubber stamp by the scouts. So I then joined the scouts um, as a cub and um, absolutely thrived, you know, absolutely loved yeah. it. it I mean, it's weird, isn't it? When people say, well, like, where did you learn to navigate? It was, it was aged nine or something in, in, in the Cubs. And, you know, you don't learn things twice, do you? But I mean, no. they literally taught me those skills. And, um, but it wasn't dreaming of sort of Shackleton and, and Scott and Randall Fines and things like that. I didn't really have that much of a direct interest in expeditions or exploration of that kind until quite late on in my life, um, actually, and, until after I le left the military and I stumbled into a, um, into a career that was leading expeditions just because well, just because I didn't want to get a proper job, really, um, like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, initially, I reckon it was it was being out in the countryside, um, spending time outdoors, and therefore, you know, de developing that sort of natural affinity to um, to being comfortable outdoors. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So there was. Did you? Was there any role models at all? And I don't. I don't mean in a in an adventure type way. I just mean was there any anything any person that stuck out in your mind that sort of inspired you to do anything really ah, um there were rugby players actually it was people like dean richards um yeah and, and latterly martin johnson uh jono lives in the same village my mum does and so i've had a bit of contact with him over the years um, um and it's 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 the guys that aren't flashy really it's the guys that have an aura about them that you know change a game just by being on the field and, and you know the mm. guys it's, it's not what they say it's it's just literally this energy that comes off them it was yeah it was rugby players like Dean and and uh, Martin Johnson that that I think had the biggest impact on me I mean I remember during when I joined the army they um um it was when Will Carling I think was uh captain of England and one of the analogies yeah. they gave and the answer to uh you know one of the questions they were going was that I don't want to be a, a Will Carling I, I want to be a uh and Martin Johnson, so it must have been when Jono had taken over. But um, but yeah, I think there's a massive difference. Is I've never been that sort of showy type that gobs off all the time. Um, it's been um, I don't know. Uh, I'd, I, I like to be more of a sort of team player and sort of you know play hard and therefore you know drag the drag the team along. I suppose. Yeah, mate, that's interesting because I would suggest I agree with you 100 percent there. Because I, I mean, asking you that question has made me think about it at the same time. And I'm like, well, there wasn't really anyone that inspired me to do much other than people that had a presence such as those that you've just listed. I mean, I don't know them, but yeah, definitely yeah. the same. Um, well, you've, you've you touched on it there. The army, the military. At what stage did that become an option? Um it's weird. I mean, I don't, I think there's, there's quite a lot of you. I mean, clearly your career, current career still sort of, um, still sort of uses your, your sort of military experience quite a lot. Obviously the name of the title of the show and all of that sort of stuff is, it's all very yeah. military. I'm, I've, I've t tried to distance myself a little bit from, from being ex-army. I, um, I didn't spend as long in, I'm sure as you did, I did, uh, you know, a year at Sandhurst and then three years as a, as an officer in the, in the infantry. But, um, it's, it, again, it was a little bit. I don't want to go and become a logistics consultant for Boots. Um, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I've got no idea what I want to do as a job. If I join the military, then I'll just, I'll just, um, you know, I can, I can delay making serious decisions. Really, um, mm. uh, apart from you know, battle decisions, <laughs> which might be <laughs> serious to some. Um, but you know what I mean. It's just I didn't want to get a job behind a desk. I wanted desperately to live a live a life which was. I don't know, fun and exciting and involved travel and stuff like that. And I don't actually think the military was that for me, but it certainly gave me some of the skills that I needed to, to go on and actually find what I wanted latterly in life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you say oh, I only did a short amount of time, but that, that's four years essentially. And, and I think it does 
it does forge something in you though doesn't it even 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 just a year even if you just did that time at, at sandhurst at the college there you'd yeah. still come out a slightly different person to what you went in because it is it's a quite a big game changer with regard to people's development I th- yeah i know i do think you're right i mean actually the the person that immediately springs to mind when you said that is uh, Ben Saunders. I don't know whether you know him, Polar Explorer Ben Saunders, but he... Um, he know who you're talking about, yeah. He was um, in the same platoon as me at Sandtest and um, and he didn't pass out. He literally left the week before we were all due to be commissioners' officers. And, wow. Uh, and uh, I always thought, what a fucking nutcase. Oh, sorry, what a nutcase. No, no, that's all, it's all good, it's all good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, why did he do that? And then latterly in life, I've looked back on it and I thought, do you know what? I don't think he ever had any intention of um, of joining the army. He just wanted, he, he's a bit of a nutter in terms of his fizz and in terms of trying to push himself as hard and learn as many new things as he can. I just think he wanted to immerse himself in a year of extraordinary, you know, leadership, management, and physical training. And, yeah. Um, and um, he did it. And, and I do think it has a massive impact on people. And I don't, I don't look back on it and dismiss it. I just mm. don't think... I wasn't really interested in warfare and tactics and stuff like that. I, I, I love the outdoors. And I think for me, it the yeah. slightly, I remember you should get rid of that fear of, you know, when you approach a barracks and there's barbed wire everywhere and you're about, and, and you should get rid of that fear, shouldn't you? By the time you become a captain. And, uh, and uh, I didn't, you know, weirdly, I found army camps, these quite fearful places where I was, I was a bit intimidated by it and a bit um, worried to put a foot wrong, which, uh, which I don't think was a good environment for me to spend the rest of my life. I, I, I think I appreciate my freedom a little bit too much. I appreciate being able to choose the jobs that I want to do rather than get posted somewhere, for example. And so, um, but yeah, I don't dismiss the, um, the sort of uh, ethos and all sorts of values that it did give me. Yeah. To be honest with you, I, I, whenever I watch something on telly and it involves a, a military base or something, I still get the shivers. The, do you? the, play, the places give me the willies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why oh, they're just thank like... Thank goodness it's not just me then. Nah, they're just miserable, aren't they? Regardless of how cool they try and make them look, I always get a dark, foreboding feeling. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. But, um, that was just me. Never mind. Yeah. But, um, mate, we're building up I'm slowly getting to the bit that I really want to get to, but I have to build, you know, it's got to be a story and a journey for everyone listening. So obviously your expertise, when, when did you start to sort of like hone in on the sort of wanting to lead expeditions or go on expeditions? How, how did you start to learn about that? Was it because of the military or was it, was it after? It was just after actually. Um, I was um, a lot of um, a lot of ex Ruperts um, go yeah. in the city afterwards, and they um, you know become stockbrokers and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> and um, and become stinking rich. And I I weirdly thought that I was you know a normal officer and that I would stumble down that route. So I started doing a certificate in securities and reading the Financial Times and all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, you know when you read an article and you get to the bottom and you can't remember a single thing in the whole article. You think, what am I doing this for? This is pointless. And so, um, again, there was an organization called the Officers Association, which had a load of really boring um, jobs on it, estate agent, accountant, all this sort of stuff. Um, And right at the bottom of the list was Expedition Leader Belize. And it was for a charity called Trek Force. And it was basically doing a conservation project in Belize, you know, building a new ranger station for a national park with a load of 18 to 24 year olds who were on their gap year. And I just went, do you know what? I'm going to do that. Spend three months away doing this uh, expedition, jungle expedition in Belize. I'd never been to the jungle before, but I thought, doesn't matter. I'll just do it. And that was yeah. it. I remember, I remember in the jungle training phase, you know, we were, we were, um, I went out on a run. All of the volunteers were doing some administration or something. I went out on a run and like literally these white-tailed deers skipped out in front of me on the path in the jungle and then these howler monkeys started <laughs> started screaming <laughs> in the tree above me and it was one of those little epiphany moments i was like why would you want to um you know go and work in the city where you could do this kind of job you know admittedly i was on 50 pounds a week i think at that point but um but yeah that, i think that was that was my little epiphany and i thought you know what expeditions are um, if I can make a career out of this or if I can just stay alive by doing yeah. fun, adventurous stuff, then then that's got to be better. Yeah. 
That was awesome. So what what were you sort of doing? Were you sort of, I suppose that was like a bit of babysitting to a certain yeah. degree, the, 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 the youngsters that were out there in Belize. Yeah, it was exactly that. I mean, so it's using the, the sort of generic officer skills, like, I suppose. Looking, yeah. Looking after your platoon and you looked after the volunteers. But I was a tour leader more than an expedition leader, I would say. I mean, we were going into the jungle. We were sleeping in hammocks and washing in rivers and stuff. But, yeah, it was a holiday for them, um, albeit in, in a fairly remote environment. I mean, we had we had quite a few experienced guys working for us. Uh, Bruce Parry was, was working for yeah. Threat Force at the time. Ben Major, I don't know whether you know him from Secret Compass and, and, and stuff. He was on the yeah. and quite a few quite a few ex-Special Forces guys as well, actually, not that I am at all, but um, um, it was quite a professional organisation, so there was all, all the comms, all the evacuation plans and stuff were all sorted, and it was just a, a nice foothold into, or a, a nice sort of foot in the door into um, a new a new world that I knew nothing about, which is the world of um, expeditions. But yeah, it was, initially it was quite tame, yeah. Yeah, all, saying it was initially quite tame, was there anything on that trip that sticks out in your mind? Anything that, any... Any anecdotes, any stories of the the youngsters nearly getting themselves in some serious shtuk? I don't know. I mean, I was. It's taken a while for me to become actually very responsible. Um, I don't know whether that's hard to make <laughs> or not. But I, I, we were pushed the boundaries massively, and I remember going down. We, we I had a break because I'd worked them quite hard because we were building and constructing, cutting trails and that sort of thing. So it's physically hard labour. And I remember having a day off, and we all went to these waterfalls and. It was a sort of braided river, so there were multiple chutes going down this waterfall, and we all, you know, like you go down a water slide. We were in the morning, we were yeah. all going down these different slides, and literally, it was amazing. It was, it was, you know, almost a dream day with the sun shining, and you know, when you've got a big clearing in a river in the jungle, and it doesn't feel oppressive anymore, and suddenly everyone's smiling and having an amazing time. Anyway, we then stopped, and, <laughs> had, and I hadn't realised that upriver, clearly, there'd been a huge amount of rainfall the night before, or or during the the morning. I don't know. But I didn't mm. clock the fact that the river level had risen over lunch and by about a foot. <laughs> and um, I then <laughs> managed to take one of the girls who was only 18, um, who had been too timid to go down any of the chutes in the morning. She'd been too nervous, but then she relaxed over lunchtime. So I, I went in with her and we went down what was in the morning, the biggest chute. And then we got to this uh, place in the river where... In the, during the morning we just swam to the side and got out but it was just above this massive waterfalls and um, and it was impossible to swim to the side I saw this the girl was in front of me she's about five meters in front of me and, and she she didn't even know because I hadn't briefed her properly but she hadn't she didn't know she was meant to um, swim to the side so she wasn't swimming she was just heading straight for the top of this waterfall and then I see her disappear over the waterfall <laughs> and it's that's a high waterfall it was way over I don't know it's about eight meters or so and you know which doesn't sound a lot but it's a it was it high. we hadn't checked out the plunge pool or anything like that anyway um, I then failed to get out as well and follow her straight over the waterfall and her face bobs up at the bottom with a massive grin on it because she didn't even know <laughs> she wasn't meant to be going over it but yeah I mean there were a few moments like that where I think I got away with it I was really lucky you know and um yeah initially it, it was just all fun and games I didn't take life that seriously and so uh, you know in this role I, f- I felt I was quite a, a good fun leader but I probably wasn't the most responsible one <laughs> Awesome. Okay, so, um, mate, the Amazon, it, I mean, it is a big thing. It's an unbelievable thing. Um, where, when did that become an idea? Well, um, so I was leading these sort of gap year type expeditions for about seven years, I suppose, um, uh, and increasingly just get slightly more bored with what A-level results people are getting and who fancies who and all that sort of stuff. And, and, um, and at the back of my mind, I'd never been to the Amazon. All my jungle experience was in Borneo, Guyana, um, and and Central America, um, mostly Belize. And um, yeah. I thought, do you know what? I'd, I'd love to go to um, um, the Amazon. And I read a book called Running the Amazon, which was um, by a, a, a New York journalist called Joe Kane, who, who who basically ran the entire length of the Amazon in a kayak with a with a Slovenian, I think he's Slovenian, apologies if we get the country wrong, but called Piotr Hemilinski. And um, right. it was an awesome book. And it was literally, they were, um, you know, going down in, in kayaks and being shot at by indigenous Indians with um, 
with bows and arrows and, you know, having to really barter their way out of situations with drugs traffickers and, you know, escaping with their life. Um, mm. And, and I, it, it really did ignite my sort of, um, you know, wow, how extraordinary. Only like 10 years ago, you could have such a old school, proper exploration. And, and um, you know, we're, we're in, in the modern day world, really. And, and so I, I'm rubbish at kayaking. And so I uh, started Googling to see if anybody had walked length the Amazon. So the same route as them, essentially, but, but on foot. Yep. And, then, and the more I looked, the more I realised that no one had ever done it before. I was looking for old expedition reports. I went down to the RGS and had a look there and asked around, and it would appear that nobody had done it. And, 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 and that, at that point, it suddenly dawned on me that if I, if I did something that nobody had ever done before, I could probably get mm. some to pay for the expedition as well so uh, <laughs> right brilliant so we could probably get a sponsor and if we got a sponsor then uh, this is this might actually happen and so it was just it just started to um it started to snowball like from then and and it was quite initially i, I reckon it was it was quite um i wasn't the most evolved um 32 year old at the time um and um i think it was quite egotistical really i really wanted to beat my chest i really wanted to um sort of do a very public display of, 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 you know, proving how tough I was, I think, if I'm, if I'm really honest. And, um, yeah. and, and, and so, yeah, that became this sort of obsession with me and it took about a year to get off the ground, but, um, that's how it all came about. What sort of things, so going into the planning, obviously it takes a year. I mean, these things, you know, even though some people might be listening going, oh, you can't, you know, what sort of planning do you need to take one person out somewhere and then go walking? But there's more to it than that, isn't there? And, what what were some of the hurdles in that planning for you? Well, the biggest the biggest hurdle was funding. Um, you know, mm. I mean, my original my original estimate of how much the whole expedition would cost was thirty two thousand. In the end, it cost one hundred six thousand for two, two years and four months that we were away. But but I didn't have that money, mate. I mean, I was still doing expedition work. I was still um, I was still getting paid relatively peanuts, really. And and yeah. um, and so. I mean, a lot of the reason we applied to Rand Fines for his, he's got this expedition trust, the Transglobe Expedition Trust that gives out grants and stuff and um, applied to him and they consulted um, an Amazon expert, uh, John Hemming, I think it was, and um, he yeah. went back to the board of trustees that to walk the Amazon was impossible, um, you know, which I've quoted a lot of times in my talks and stuff like that, but it was... <laughs> It was so lovely that Rand, because he's a bit of a nutcase, just went, well, that's brilliant. If, if it's impossible, let's get <laughs> money and, and, uh, and let, he can try and prove, prove you wrong, um, which was really sweet. But um, I don't know, it's, uh, it, it was trying to convince people it was possible, but it was also looking for ways in my head where I could reassure myself that it was possible. And I found, yeah. this, I think the reason that everyone thought it was impossible, one day people get a bit overwhelmed by the scale of things, you know, that is, it's 4,000 miles, it's through some of it, a relatively unexplored jungle. And, um, and therefore I think people get overwhelmed by that and just think it must be impossible. But also, because the Amazon floods, um, obviously in, 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 in rainy season, and the mm. extend, I don't know, up to about 100 kilometers each side of the river. There's no, there's no banks to really walk along. And I think that's why they, the, the so-called experts said it was impossible because they said, well, you can't walk, you can't walk on water, can you? Therefore, it, it's impossible. But I found this, um, this image on Google that was accredited to NASA, which appeared to show um, a sort of map of where um, the extent of the floodwaters got to at the peak of flood. Yeah. And so I wrote to NASA actually, and this guy called Bruce Chapman um, wrote back immediately and a uh, really kind guy and sent me this CD-ROM or multiple CD-ROMs through the post for free. And it was, they'd done this experiment in, in 96, I think with satellite technology and it was using some sort of refraction technique from satellites. And it, it looked through the jungle canopy and, f and snapshotted the, um, the, the floods at different times of the year. So essentially I was then able to take this information of where the hard ground is and where the floods are and annotate my maps and basically draw a line on it and handrail the amazon and therefore and therefore i had a little um route that you know no one had ever gone before but it was it was following the hard ground rather than the um rather than the flooded forest and obviously each tributary had its own um associated flooded forest as well so i did have to cross some but it, it cut out a massive amount of the 
the Varzea or Flood of Forest, which I think was the bit that people thought was impossible. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I'll tell you what, that's like he sent you that CD ROM for nothing, and yet that was probably one of the most invaluable bits of information that you were ever to get to help you in planning where to go. Yeah, it's a, it, I mean, he's very, very thanked in the book, and I, I do make yeah. it point of saying that you know that was that was probably the turning point you know that was when I went I've actually got a plan that no one else knows about that means that I might just do this um which was quite cool yeah so that was that was it you you packed your boot what mate I know I'm going to ask some bizarre questions what Uh, boots did you wear um initially I wore Outbergs um yeah I'm sure you're familiar with them um, Yorkshire that hand make all their boots um and in fact, they were the main boot sponsor for the whole of Walk in the Amazon. Um, the the eyelets got clogged up, um, and and therefore the boots didn't drain. They were a little bit more structured than the U.S. military um, army uh, jungle boot, and so yeah. I actually asked them because because they they would last about three months with walking every day and being in the floods and stuff. And so I asked them when they posted over um, a new set if they could just replace the eyelets. Sorry, the 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 sort of valves in the in the yeah yeah the drain the drainage um, holes yeah drainage holes it asked them to just replace them with shoelace eyelets um so that it was a big hole there so they definitely would drain and it half and it half didn't work because it also meant if I walked across a sandy riverbed my feet would suck sand in and I got horrendous blisters before I realised what was going on with that Um, uh, but then also um, I reckon for four months of the of the uh, two and a bit years, um, I was just wearing wellies off the local market because you know the boots would fall apart <laughs> before a journalist or someone was flying over and could bring a next pair in. I just had to buy a pair of wellies, and I'm size ten and a half, and the largest size was pretty much always nine, and so they were like yeah. size and a half too small, and my toes were all bent over. But I I got to really love wellies actually. I thought you know they're such a simple thing. Obviously, what what are the locals? always wearing the jungle aren't they a pair of football yeah and a, and a pair of wellies and and again found that was quite a good system you know especially when at night you're putting them on sticks and they don't have to dry out you know and in the morning there's no soggy laces all in caked in mud and you know this horrible sort of jungle um sort of rot that's going on your boots they're just bone dry because they're rubber and so i, I yeah. quite like wellies now i have to admit yeah yeah they they are the um the jungle slip on just yeah. slip and slip and go yeah and at night, i don't know whether this is interesting to your listeners or not but at night i just wore crocs around camp um and because they were just again because they, they didn't get wet and they were super super light and you know just powdered my feet and and um i i, I think one of the things other people were think, thinking might be impossible was to keep on top of um immersion foot or trench foot but um, yeah but we found that if you just washed in the river um, each night and, and washed your clothes as well, we had sort of antibacterial soap. So we'd wash our clothes yeah. and our socks, get out. We'd put made, made a little hanging, a uh, little washing line that we'd rigged underneath the spare to our pooling so that would go over the fire. And, and then we'd, at night, we'd walk around in our crocs and powder our feet when we got in a hammock, have like 12 hours of re- recuperation time for our feet. And then in the morning, you'd put on, not just clean socks, but warm socks because they're above the fire as well. Like they just come out yeah. there, and it was it was the most. It was really, I think that was one of the really satisfying things about the expedition. As as time went on, we developed these really really efficient systems, and um, and it just felt like we were winning. You know, there's that feeling. Yeah. I'm sure you must get it as well when you're lying in your hammock and it's hoofing it down with rain, and it's literally. <laughs> The whole of the jungle is wet except you, and you just feel smug, don't you? you say, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not degrading. I'm actually sustaining myself. So yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's always the little things, isn't it, that sort of probably get you through those moments, like you having that system in place. Just knowing that you were going to put on a warm pair of socks each morning is like yeah. uh, it is like utter morale. Yeah, and it, it is exactly. It's, it, everything's relative, isn't it? And like. It, mm you'd think that a warm pair of socks, you know, you'd think about it for about two seconds, but it, it changes your mental state for the whole morning. It's like literally the, the you know, the, I'm, I, I, and again, as you get older and sometimes you get slacker and you forget these things. And sometimes I go away on trips now and, um, and I'll, I'll just go, oh, I can't really be bothered. And I'll take my wet, wet t-shirt on and hang it off a branch. And then in the morning you just go, why didn't yeah. I the effort? It's yeah. and it stinks and it's got flies all over it. And, yeah, so I think it was it was 
it was just taking that admin seriously. And I think that's, you know, as, as again, you must well know, um, administration was the whole thing. It wasn't super strength. It wasn't, um, mm -hmm. it wasn't any weird cunning tactics, really. It was just get your admin right and then you can keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you've highlighted there that it's the little things that give you the highs. But, I mean, that's two and a half years of <laughs> walking in probably one of the most hostile environments with regard to, you know, nature, Mother Earth, mm. that you could experience. What, what sort of lows were there? I mean, there must have been some reasonably low lows. Yeah, yeah, there were. I mean... It's weird. I um, I think the um, again, I I know that um, you're going to be compassionate about this, but uh, but the um, I definitely got depressed. I um, mm. I during the Peruvian stage, the Peruvians really, um, and I don't think it's any fault of the Amazonian Peruvians, but they've been treated badly. Both the indigenous tribes that live there and 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 the, and the uh, sort of colonial settlers. Um, like the indigenous tribes have been pushed off their land and um, yeah. by the drugs traffickers and stuff, which clearly, you know, lots about because of the narcos stuff. And, and, um, and they were living in this state of sort of constant defensiveness. So every time I'd rock up at a, at a little community or village, they'd be either terrified of me or quite, you know, aggressive towards me. And yeah. it was really quite wearing having to explain yourself and trying to demonstrate that you're a nice, kind tourist who's not threatening or anything like that and and it just wore me down and and i've got yeah. a, I, I have one of those right in the rain um notebooks that is waterproof and 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 um you know i started off using a pencil then i ended up using a biro and and when i started using a biro you can see on the on the notebook when i was writing the book that the page is often stained with like tears it's like stream with tears and i just because it's the one space i could actually kind of let go was in my hammock at night and you're holding it together for that amount of time yeah. a day and you don't want to show any of the guides uh, the local guides that are walking with you or anything like that 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 you're struggling and then I'd, I'd find I'd get into my hammock and I'd, I'd just silently just cry and tears would just go down my face and 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 and, and so I definitely think I it was my first experience of what I would describe as proper depression I I would have this mm. um I didn't. I didn't know anything about mental health back then. Nothing at all. And and and, and it was it was weird having these um, quite negative emotions um, without anyone to chat to. Really, um, uh, you know, I, I did eventually find Cho, who was a Peruvian that I walked with for a long time. But the language barrier was quite significant. Certainly before my Spanish got to a reasonable level. But um, yeah. but I just I'd have this little thing that I would say to myself: um, Are you moving forward? And I, if each night we'd incrementally just gone forward a little bit. And the answer was therefore yes. Then, then that was all that mattered. Um, and it was it was almost animalistic for a few months in Peru, where I wasn't enjoying any of it. Um, I think I, I would I would get glimpses of happiness when, you know, when you jump into the river at the end of the day and 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 you wash yourself off and it mm. washes all the stress away as well, doesn't it? And I, I'd I'd have yeah. little, little moments of happiness when I was washing, and then obviously little moments of happiness when I was eating as well or, or having a sweet coffee. But um, <laughs> for the rest of the time, I was literally, it was weird. It was like animalistic. I was existing. Um, mm. and, um, and I think in, in a weird way, that was, that was probably quite an um, evolutionary period for me because it, it stripped, away all the, stripped away all the army arrogance out of me, actually. Um, and it stripped me right down to basics. You know how in military training, they... Um, Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Deliberately sleep deprive you and, and, uh, and knock you down so that they can build you up. And, um, yeah. and it was only as we're coming out of, um, coming out of Peru towards Iquitos in the north parts of Peru and Paybas that my confidence started coming back, but it was coming back based on genuine things rather than people saying, oh, Ed, it will be all right, or, you know, um, trying to jolly me along because there was no one around. It was, it was things like being able to walk across a, a, a fallen tree over a, a river and not fall off or being able to sharpen my machete well and genuinely yeah. sort of tactile things. And my confidence started coming back and I started to enjoy it, but it was... It was one of the biggest lessons of, <clears throat> you know, I, I suppose looking after yourself and not, not looking for other people to, to, to sort of uh, bring you back up and actually, and, and, and trying to do it for yourself. But, you know, based on a sort of more, more genuine understanding of who you are, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, I, I, I still can't get my head around it because I'm, I, I've got so many things like, you when when you were doing the whole thing was it predominantly under canopy? Yeah, most of it. I mean, when I would say the latter half of Brazil, so the last mm. seven months or so, there's loads of logging roads, and so unfortunately, it was it was just caning it in the blistering sun down muddy logging yeah. roads. Um, um, but yeah, the the first half of it, and Peru is littered with lots and lots of indigenous communities, and so mm. we, we very rarely didn't stay in a community at night for the Peruvian section. I remember an American journalist uh, called Matt Power who came in. Sadly, he died on Leveson Woods um, walking the Nile. Yeah. Yeah. But he came in and he was just like, because I was trying to light a fire and it was raining and he was like, Ed, why are you not better at lighting a fire? <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> he came in and started helping me and I was like, Matt, it's because um, I don't have to light a fire. Like we're normally in villages and we, and you know, there's a nice old, chubby lady that normally cooks us um a chicken and uh yeah and he found that extraordinary but but we'd had to do that because we um because uh we'd found that if we camped on the outside of villages and, and hadn't gone in and introduced us that was far worse in terms of the villagers being suspicious of us if they found out as it was getting dark dark that there was a you know a white person sleeping in the jungle just outside the village they would break yeah and so we had to go in and then once you'd gone through those sort of layers of suspicion and fear and everything like that there was normally yeah a, a lady that would cook cook food but um and then it was only when we got into brazil that the population density became much much um less and and then then we had proper extended times i think i think the longest we went between settlements was three weeks um but that was Again, carrying enough food for three weeks through the jungle is is is, is quite a feat in itself. So um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But it was um, it was there. It was then that it became the expedition that I wanted it to be. It was then that we were, you know, you're you're living off your wits to combat the jungle rather than rather than trying not to get slotted by a you know drunk indigenous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the I mean the jungle is a it's a it's an it's a majorly challenging environment, especially if you're not prepared for it. Because I'd like going back to like being under canopy. So for people listening, under canopy means you're under the under the trees. You can't really see you can't see the sky. To, to be honest with you, and it, for me, when you spend prolonged periods of time under the canopy, it can be, you know, it, it can get to you a little bit. And I I remember taking. You know, I used to get massive bout boosts of morale whenever I saw a bit of blue sky every now and again. Was it? Was it? Could it get like that sometimes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, that it was normally the respite was was crossing a tributary river, and we'd got these little inflatable pack rafts. So you know, you come down to the edge of the river and fight your way through yeah. the, the razor grass and brambles and shit, and then and then inflate the the raft by the river, and then when you're out on the water, suddenly. Um, you'd find yourself smiling for, for no reason because <laughs> eyes can focus on something that's further than 10 meters away. Yeah. And, it, and, and then there was, you know, the, the direct sunlight on your face. And I found it similar with lockdown as well. You know, obviously with our little one, hour, uh, one, one form of exercise a day, it's, it's getting perspective, isn't it? I think, I think the thing that drives yeah. up crazy in the, in the jungle is that there's so many different things that you could focus on if your eyes chose to it's it's almost confusing and mm. a bit like being in a house full of people that you can't get away from it's just like you need a bit of perspective and and for me getting going out on a run was a bit like crossing a river on the amazon it yeah just, yeah 
I can breathe again. I can relax. I can see the jungle at a distance and get, you know, and, and now I've got to go in there, but you know, at least I can breathe. It was like coming up for air. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people struggle with mental health in the jungle and um, on, you know, even on the gap year expeditions, you, you see people going a bit nutty bonkers, but, mm. um, but um, yeah, I think again, it was just looking for those little, little things to, to, um, to counter that and I think yeah definitely getting getting sun on your face get finding a clearing or something like that or finding a river was was one of those brilliant mate what happened at the end how did it how did it all culminate and what was the response from people out in, from you know how did the world sort of embrace what you'd just done um do you know what it was it was extraordinary there was a, a lovely lady called Vicky Rimmer who had um, agreed to do my publicity for the whole expedition for free. Um, initially, obviously, she thought it would take maybe a year and it, she, she did the whole thing for two and a half years for free. But she was really ballsy. She was like a guerrilla style publicist. And um, for the 10 days, I mean, aside from the men's journal articles and Guardian articles and stuff that she sorted up, but for the 10 days prior to the expedition finishing, she managed to get us live interviews with Fanuna Sweeney or whatever her name was on CNN, but that went out to 240 international territories live. Wow. And we did a, we did a media evaluation of all of the articles and, and airtime that we got for the expedition. And um, it came to 25 million pounds. So that's how much it would have cost us to actually, you know, take out that, that sort of media space in, in advertising and, and, and it was all, it was all done by this lovely lady from her kitchen on a laptop. And so I was extraordinarily grateful and therefore the response was extraordinary. And it helped that it was August and therefore there was nothing in the news um, and all the politicians had gone on holiday and stuff. But you know, if you, if you want to finish an expedition and get, and get um, media coverage, then finish it in August. Cause that is, <laughs> nobody's got anything to write about. So it was in, in that respect, it was awesome. And um, and we were on the front page of the iPad Times and all that sort of stuff. So you know, I was I was super happy, and and um, and it was just you know both. I think sometimes you know things are either a personally personally great or they're sort of publicly great, and you're doing them for a career. But it was just it was one of those few moments in life where you look back on and you go, look, this is this is extraordinary. I I've done what I set out to do. It has been hard, but the sense of accomplishment, the sense of um, relief as well if I'm honest um was mm. massive but then the cherry on the icing on the cake was was that people seemed to get it as well and I was I, I was I was very aware while we were walking the Amazon that people just might not be remotely interested you know somebody's walked yeah. around. one what a daft thing to do why didn't you go by boat two is it really that hard you know you're just putting one foot in front of each other camping each yeah. night and keeping you know I genuinely would constantly have you know is anyone going to give a monkeys about this um, and yet, because we got that media coverage, then it got a Discovery Channel um, commission, and and they made a program which was which was mediocre at best. But you know, again, it was a foot in the door of a of a brand new career for me. So um, I couldn't have been yeah couldn't have been happier. I remember crying on the beach. Again, I'm a bit of a heart on sleeve person, but I mean, I remember crying crying. On the beach. <laughs> I'd been in such a mood all morning. I'd been grumbling and moaning at everyone, and like um it, you know flat and then when we got to the beach it was just extraordinary like literally running down the running down the sand into the ocean and like um cho and i uh, uh shrugged off our rucksacks and started legging it towards the ocean and then the thing that is, will always stick with me is that for some daft reason we started holding hands as we uh, <laughs> and i was just like no this is the one moment that all the media is taking photos of and we're holding hands skipping into the ocean with my new Peruvian friend um so yeah um it was um yeah best day of my life apart from my wedding I think I've got to say that because my wife might be listening so uh, yeah obviously obviously yeah mate it's like that that so the Amazon is just I mean mate I, I I lots of lots of respect it's an amazing thing and two and a half years on an expedition is is I mean that is just expedition on an industrial size that is but so i mean yeah that's awesome however like you said there at the end of that um story it it was the gateway now to what is your your new career which is now a career that's been going for a long for quite a while now and you've done some other amazing things and you've done some amazing tv work and there's stuff that i well there's one thing that i want to talk to you about but i'm gonna i want to talk about i want you to talk about 
what are the shows that you've most enjoyed doing and why? Um, <clears throat> the shows that I've most enjoyed doing, um, it's weird. I think um, the ones that I'm most enjoying are actually the ones I'm doing at the moment because um, uh, the um, the current format for my shows are, uh, is, is a race against um, other survival experts. Um, and I don't yeah. do one against Aldo and you know, it was, one of the most fun, um, you know, 10 days of my life. It was um, so much fun. Aldo came in with such an amazing attitude. And it's funny, mm. quite a lot of these, the opponents that go up and come in with a really suspicious attitude. They think they're going to be stitched up. They think it won't be fair. <laughs> you know, they're, they're paranoid about their, their own brand and their own image and losing and stuff like that. But Aldo just, bless him, came in, massive heart, through, every, you know, was carrying pelly cases and stuff from the word yeah. go. You know exactly as you'd expect, but mm. but it lifted the whole crew, and and then I think that was one of the, my favourite in, in in that respect because there was just such a positive energy, and we all had a good laugh, and and you know during the prep phase and afterwards had a few beers and all that sort of stuff, and it was it was good fun, and I think the reason I enjoy it is because there is quite a big crew now, um you know sometimes on location there's you know over forty people, um yeah with all the different safety involved of having two separate units moving through remote environments and trying to keep them all safe. And then all the, obviously the producers and the runners bringing, bringing footage back to this sort of mobile editing unit and stuff. And I like the energy of all those people. Um, it's good. That said, the TV I'm most proud of is the stuff I've done on my own. Um, mm. but, I, but I didn't enjoy it as much. Um, you know, quite a lot of it, especially that initial 60 days on Olorua was, you know, it was haunting, you know, and I, yeah. I, I, I certainly see, although walking the Amazon was the biggest thing I've ever done, um, 60 days on Oliver was probably the most intense and the toughest because um, I hadn't worked out how difficult isolation would be. I hadn't, hadn't really done enough to prepare for that. And I don't know whether maybe anyone can until you actually go through it for the first time, but I unraveled yeah. in a way that I just that took me off guard completely. Um, Did Yeah. Did you think on on Marooned? Um, did you, were there moments where you were like, "I've bitten off more than I can chew here," as in psychologically, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Naked and Marooned was the initial one that was sixty days, and then from then on, the sort of spin-off series was ten days. Now, right, I think that ten days wouldn't be enough for it to teeter you over the edge, but I think again. It, everyone with mental health recognises that when once you've gone there, you're weirdly more susceptible to go there again, I think. And so, yes, I would struggle in those 10 days as well sometimes. And and it was often, oh, it was just little things like, I, I, again, if you, if you, when you're tired and you haven't got any food and you don't know where food's coming from, I could get, I get really real, I have had real food issues because it's almost like this, um, frenetic franticness and start panicking because i haven't got any food and um yeah and um and yeah there's definitely been it i think this is the series was a success because 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 i wasn't terribly good <laughs> a, a number of points of, <laughs> of staying emotionally balanced and and i think you know you if ray mears was to do it um um uh, you know you might see this much more comfortable experience of a man, you know, sitting there quite comfortable, whittling his spoon and then catching fish and then doing this. And, but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have engaged the audience in the same manner. The impact, yeah. Weirdly, because when I went on Olorua, which was the island for the 60 days, I, I'd never, I, d I didn't know how to light a fire with two sticks when I walked the Amazon. I used a lighter every time, you know, like every ex-military person in the world does. Um, <laughs> but... I had to learn those skills, but I, I learned them quite crudely and quite quickly, you know, and now mm. I say that I'm, I'm pretty good at that stuff, but it's taken a decade to, to develop those skills. Um, so certainly initially I'd make loads of mistakes and I would struggle because I was outside my comfort zone. And it's weird. I think it would have been all a lot easier had there not been the self-filming pressure as well, because you're not just trying to light a fire, but you're, you're then setting up cameras to record yourself fail multiple times to light a fire that you know is going to be seen by millions of people and and, and so you, there's this weird pressure also not just to survive but also you know one i've got to film this in a way that's going to be editable by um a team of editors who aren't here on the ground but two it's got to be entertaining enough so there was there were multiple pressures and i, and I think as a result yeah. i didn't always deal with them terribly well um 
I've been public about it in, in, in the book, Naked and Marine, but you know, I had to go into therapy, crikey. Um, when was it? It was about a year after I came off the island and, and we were meant to be flying out in the first series of Marooned to Thailand to film an episode. And I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I, was, I was literally intimidated by the concept of even packing. I couldn't pack my works out. I was, I was tearful and emotional and stuff. And, and it, was, um, it was the closest I would, I've come to what I would describe as a breakdown. And I remember seeing the first psychologist I've ever seen in my life, um, uh, which was aged now, crikey, about 36, I think. And, um, yeah. And um, he said, look, Ed, I'm, you've, got to, you've got to understand that, um, you've del- you know, if, if I wanted to turn a man's brain into mush, I'd lock him in a room and isolate him for about 60 days. And, you know, by, by the end of 60 days, you know, you could almost get him to do anything. He's like, you might have not have, you know, might not have, like, hostages, you know, gone there against your will but you have been isolated for an extended period of time and it's had, a, it's had an effect. And I think um, yeah. it was, in, it was you know, it's weird when people give you a bit of sympathy for the first time and you, you like start welling up and go, oh, thank fuck, somebody actually gets it. But, um, <laughs> yeah. um, and it was nice. And, and, and weirdly, it's not a sub story either because I wouldn't trade that 60 days for anything in the world. It's made me so much more self-aware. It's made me so much less dependent on other people's positive comments to buoy me through life, if you know what I mean. I f- yeah. understand myself so much better. And if, if I was to do the same experiment again, I think I would cope a lot better. But it just, um, it was a catalyst for, you know, lots of introspection, and which, which needed to happen, weirdly. I don't, I, I, I know a lot of people think, or certainly used to, and thankfully the tide is changing in terms of attitudes, that, you know, if you did too much therapy then it was sort of navel gazing and you sort of self-obsessed and stuff like that but I really think I'm a really strong believer that you've got to get yourself to a good independent position where you're coping with life before you can contribute well to a family haven't you because if you're if you're kind of got this leech energy and you're unstable and you're emotionally all over the place then you're going to be a rubbish dad or a husband and whatever aren't you so so I think those years were necessary (laughs) and, and and weirdly those adventures were like life on acid or something. They were just they were just life so enhanced and so intense that it that it accelerated that that sort of healing for me. And and I, I now I now consider myself a, a you know a good a good father and a and a and a, a good husband to Laura. But I think I, I wouldn't be had I had I not gone through it all. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mate. That's awesome. I really 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 like that. Um, Mate, going. What's your what is the what's your most favourite area in the world to be? Favourite area. Um, I always say the jungle, and then I return to the jungle and go, "Why do I like this?" Place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I spent a couple of years in um, Argentina during the phase when I was doing um, conservation expeditions down in Patagonia, uh, near a, yeah. a town called San Carlos de Bariloche, and um, I love Argentina. Is the people are like there's there's this they they they're self-deprecating like british people they love their sport they love their rugby um the women are beautiful the <laughs> like international ski resorts the, you know it, I, from the the steaks are amazing the red wine's amazing i i, I think yeah. i wouldn't want to go and live there now because i think there's just too many exciting things to do in life but maybe in terms of a a retirement place i think not that i'd need the beautiful women obviously i'm happily married with um kiddies on the way but um argentina for some reason has a bit of a special special place in my heart yeah yeah that's still on that's funny i've i've done quite a lot of south america but still i have not done argentina so that is on my bucket list and even more so now mate i want to there is something i want to touch on and that was the you going homeless oh okay yeah because I, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, it's not close to my heart because I've, I've never been homeless, but there's a lot of people out there that are struggling and there's a lot of, again, the statistics of, of ex-military that are homeless is quite staggering as well. But what was that experience like? Um, I'll answer that question in two parts because the military thing is, is fascinating, but not, not maybe for the reason you might think. Um, the, the whole experience was, I mean, I tied myself in knots beforehand. I was pretty intimidated by it. I'm not, yeah. weirdly, I'm not the person that sits down on the street and has a chat with a homeless person. Um, I wish I wish I was, and maybe I am mm. now, but I certainly wasn't. Um, I 
definitely held homeless people at arm's length and I was a bit intimidated by the whole world. You know, the, the possible crime, the drugs, the this, that and the other. And, and um, I remember on night one of doing it, I, just, I said to the producer, I don't, I don't want to sit down and talk to any homeless people. <laughs> and he's like, you're probably going to have to get over that, Ed, if you want to make this program. <laughs> but it was terrifying, you know. I just literally, also, because I was dressed as a homeless person, I thought they were just going to go, you utter twat. You know, because yeah. you're not homeless. You've got a nice house in Leicestershire. Go back home and leave us alone. I thought, and you know, and some of them did, actually. But um, it was... Mm. It was pitching it right initially. It was going, and, 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 and the production said to me, like, okay, your line is that you're intentionally homeless. And um, I was like, what? And, then, and they're like, well, you've got a home, but you're choosing to be homeless. And I'm like, what? And then I, I started using it initially. I knew it was the wrong tactic initially, but I started using it, and the response was so negative. Literally people screaming and shouting, you know, I'm going to rip your fucking head off. I don't care if I go back. Yeah. I'm going to kill you and all this stuff. And, uh, and, and, and um, I realised then that there was no way on earth that I could start talking to any homeless people um, or anyone on the streets and not be honest. So I would sit down, we'd share a cigarette or something and, and, and um, ask them about, you know, their backstory where everyone's got a little story and, and how they're yeah. doing and stuff. And then as soon as they, if they did ask me about myself, I'd say, look, I'm not homeless. I'm sleeping on the streets for 60 days in order to make a programme for Channel 4 to tell the stories of people like you. So if you're interested in being a part of that, then, then that would be ace. And, and then at that point, I'd, you know, if they said yes, I'd call the cameraman in and they'd mic them up and that sort of stuff. But I, I realised that I couldn't, you know, come out with a sort of yeah. cover story and then after five minutes go, actually, everything I've told you for the last five minutes is a load of rubbish. Yeah. Um, so that was the way in. And then surprisingly, bizarrely, um, people were quite appreciative of that. And, um, and they opened up the, their world in a way that I never dreamed was, was, um, was feasible um, in, in terms of the sort of access they gave me. And I, they'd often, for example, one, one of the guys, Lee, who actually came to live with us for about eight weeks after, the, after we finished filming and painted half our house. Um, <laughs> he, yeah. He, uh, he took me aside one day and like, we got on really well. He was sort of cheeky chappy. He was about six foot six and he was an ex-boxer and he'd won 29 out of 31 fights. And he sort of ruled the strand in London. And it was, I had a really good time. Well, not weirdly, he's a human being, but I had a really good time. Yeah. But he took me aside and he just said, look, I don't want the crew to know, but um, I've got this court case looming over my head and they might not, you know, and, and, and the, we couldn't show anyone on camera that, had, that it might influence a court case or something like that. But yeah, the fact that he was taking me aside to tell me, but considering me to be his mate and the crew to be a different entity completely, just showed. Yeah. Us, showed it was it, weirdly people accepted me and people were treating me more like a homeless person and less like a camera person coming in. So I think, although it was a kind of stunt to be on the streets and actually sleeping out there, in terms mm. of access, it worked massively. And I think you know the homeless people were just appreciative that. I would put myself in their shoes, I think. And, and yeah. I'm relieved that that happened because I thought they were going to think I, you... I think, I think, yeah, I think that comes down to you working out the fact that, you know, you can't build a relationship on a one-liner, can you? It's, no. It takes a bit of time and you've got, you've got to sort of like feel your way through it. And, you yeah. know, an idea is an idea, but reality is another thing altogether. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and no one knew, nobody knew exactly how it was going to work. I mean, initially the whole project was meant to be self-filmed and, you know, I, I filmed the first two days on my iPhone and um, the footage was so crap, you know, it was really, that they like, okay, we need to rethink this and we, we're going to have a team of camera people around. They're going to come in and they're going to be at a respectful distance. And then, you know, as soon as you've got, as soon as you've got people's um, confidence and, and stuff, then we'll, we'll, we'll start filming. But um, and then, yeah on to the military side of things the thing i found extraordinary and i know that there are a lot of military guys who are so-called hidden homeless i.e they've lost their homes but they're in hostels and stuff like that but yeah. in, in the 60 days that i did on the streets i met one genuinely ex-military um person and, and no way one person who was on the street and he there was what's this organization which was a sort of peace thing against um he basically had become a bit of a hippie and he he was yeah. he was refusing the assistance from any of the military charities on principle because he'd become um 
because he'd become so, so, so anti-military. So the only reason oh, right. he was still on the street, he was an ex-para, but the only reason he was still on the streets was, was essentially out of a sort of um, a moral choice. But there was not one, there was a few people that tried to scam me and like yeah. <laughs> said that they were ex yeah. And that was hilarious in some ways. And I was like, yeah, so, who, so where did you serve? And they were like, yeah, Saudi Arabia. And I was like, who are you fighting against? <laughs> the enemy. And <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, the, the positive in that story is that I really do believe that um, if anyone hits rock bottom, I think at the moment the military charities are doing a brilliant, brilliant job of coming in very yeah. quickly and scooping them up. And, um, and as a result, you know, I was told a third of the people that I was going to meet on the streets were were going to be ex-military and was one of the reasons that they chose me for the job because they thought that again I would have that language to be able to converse with them yeah having been in the military but yeah um, only one in the entire 60 days and you know maybe that was a skewed section of, of homeless people but you know we went to the Strand in London which was which is the biggest epicenter of, um, of homelessness in the UK there's about 220 people sleeping rough at the time around there we were in central Manchester and we were in Glasgow and, and out of all of them in the entire 60 days, as I said, only that one. And, um, and so I, I, again, I think, you know, it, it's, it's all credit to those charities that are coming in and, and, and stopping the soldiers fall to absolute rock bottom. Yeah. Mate, that's, that is fascinating. And I, I'm, I would, I'm glad we spoke about that because that is something that I was really, really keen to talk to you about anyway. Um, we've got to start winding it up slowly, but um, mate, how do you decompress? What do you do when you come back from these mental crazy things? What is it that you do that gets you back into the normal, normal way of living your life back home with the wife and kids? Yeah, um, I think uh, lots of very normal things, really. I think it literally is doing normal stuff. It's you know, going out into the garden and wrestling on the on the lawn with my little boy or, um, you know, having a glass of wine with my wife in the evening and, yeah. and, and you know, watching Gogglebox or something daft. And, uh, <laughs> Which I'm enjoying at the moment as well. Love that programme. It's so funny. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I, I run, for example, in the day is, is a bit of a reset for me. And, you know, I think in lockdown, especially so, it just gives you that perspective that physically getting outdoors is, is, is a great thing. But um, yeah. it's normal stuff. It's no, it's nothing. It's never anything fancy, and never has been. You know, going to the pub, having a Guinness, in, in when when we're not in in this uh, COVID phase, is is just it's just nice having a bit of a laugh, yeah. people, you know, and relaxing. But um, but um, yeah, it's it, I, having said that, the blessing of of this time is is that is that time with family. It's been it's been yeah, weirdly weirdly nice actually. Yeah, yeah, but we've. Looking forward into the future because that's that's always a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, what what have you got coming up when when we do get back to normal? Um, well, I've had a number of things cancelled, as I'm sure you have too. Um, yeah, I'm meant to be doing the sequel to the Homeless Program with Channel Four. Um, um, I think they they did announce it in the trade press, so I'm probably not um, breaking any. <laughs> I was I was going to do sixty days with. Um, with gypsies and obviously gypsies are a section of society where then they spend their whole lives so it wasn't a sort of shocking things can he spend 60 days with gypsies like, of course he can yeah but um but it is a section of society where, where there's so much discrimination against it's almost the last section of society where it's acceptable to be racist against um, yeah and it's digging into that from a gypsy perspective um, and a traveller perspective and, and finding out how, what, what it is to live because the laws have changed so much in recent years to uh, stop gypsies from being able to travel and you know, the, the police mm. uh, enforcement um, and being able to move people on. Anyway, that, that, that's a project that got cancelled. Fingers crossed it'll happen next year because I think it's a, it's a really meaty yeah. to get into. Um, and the um, and the survival stuff with discovery is still is still continuing as well. Um, um, it's all started launching in Asia. My latest series, first one out, series two, has started airing, um, and I think it will it won't be long before they they make a decision that um, that to air it internationally. It only got delayed because of again because of all of this coronavirus stuff. So and then yeah. fingers crossed towards the end of the year when we're allowed to do international travel, then then filming will start again. But um, I suppose the first thing I've got actually is. Um, is we're probably um, mid July, I think we're going to have twin girls. So yeah, that's 
that's the most exciting thing. That's a that's a big thing. That is a big thing. Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Thanks, Roxy. Mate, right. So I'm going to wind up now with with um, one more question, and the reason we do this is because it's sent in. It's a it's a there's a load of questions sent in, yeah. and then I choose one. And the question that I get that I read out, that person gets a bottle of Talisker single malt whiskey made by the sea. Right. Um, so this one's come on. It's come over on. Um, instagram and hopefully it's relevant i don't know there's a lot of questions that are all the same and they're all about stuff that we've already spoken about but this one's from instagram account moffatelli and it's for you obviously ed and it's like from a former teammate what's the best part of playing for stony gate rugby club (laughs) uh i think it's that that club is um i said i played mini rugby for them at six years old uh, I was in yeah. the Colts I was in the Colts I've been in the first team second team third team and wow. team and vets <laughs> now um, it's just it's just got mates from my entire life um, you know different people like um, that I've known for the entire my entire life and I, I love winning or losing and, and, and often it's losing um, I love just going on to <laughs> people that I know that well and you know yeah. you don't even have to say anything to each other it's that little look that you're with old mates that mean a hell of a lot to you um so yeah that's probably it that's a bit of a that's awesome mate i'm glad i'm glad i found that found that question uh awesome ed thanks mate that was brilliant thank you thanks very much to ed hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow me and the book of man for the latest news Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast and thanks to you all out there for listening. Cheers and see you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.